Well, friends, now if you would, again, take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5 for a time of continuing this journey through the Gospel of Luke. And we are focused right now on this section that reminds us of the kingdom authority that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we look at this today in Luke chapter 5. So turn your, in your Bibles, if you would, there, please. As you're turning there, let me tell you about a time when uh, a few years ago, Susan and I were strolling through a quaint shopping area. Let me rephrase that. I was being dragged through a quaint shopping area. <laughs> and we came upon a gift shop that had as its name something old, something new, something old, something new. And uh, I actually, when I saw it, smiled while shopping with Susan. I actually smiled because I, first of all, recognized uh, the source of that, the, uh, the rhyme about preparing for the wedding day, which says to the bride, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. But I also saw that sign, and I smiled also for a different reason, because I have taken that little rhyme as I do pre-marriage counseling, and I've changed the words just a little bit as I talk to the couple about financing. Change the words just a little to the rhyme. It goes like this, by the old not the new, too much borrowing will make you blue. <laughs> now I know, that's as corny as a cornfield in August, but just as valuable, just as valuable. By the old, not the new, too much borrowing will make you blue. I talk about a lot of topics when I go through the pre-marriage sessions with a couple and one of the first things, one of the very first things I always talk to them about is old relationships. Old relationships. Now, I never ask them to go into the details about old relationships, but I just want to make sure they are old relationships, as in past, as in over. <laughs> because one thing is certain, for a successful marriage... The old relationships must give way to the new. Not just in the family relationship must there be the leaving from father and mother and joining to the spouse. But in regard to former relationships, there must be the leaving of those old relationships so there can truly be the bonding of a new relationship, this new covenant relationship of marriage. When someone is in a marriage relationship and wants to hold on to old relationships, that is a disaster. That will never work because it's not God's plan. Old relationships must give way to the new covenant relationship of marriage. 
And my friends, the same is true in regard to our new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. If we are going to have the new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, we have got to let go of the old covenant relationship, the old covenant religion. We've got to let go of what we've tried to do in keeping the law, which we could not do, and trust the one who kept it for us and gave his life to pay the penalty of that law for which we were so just due our judgment. In Jesus' ministry, some of the biggest opposition that he faced was with people who wanted to hold on to the law, or as they considered the law, not truly God's law, but their man-made rules and regulations. They, they wanted to hold on to those, and they wanted Jesus to embrace those. But that cannot happen, because Jesus came to bring the new covenant, a new living relationship with him. And there could not be a holding on to something old and the embracing of something new in him, new life in him. And that's what I want us to see this morning in this passage. How that we have to be very, very clear that we understand that our life in Christ, if we are his disciples is something new. It's fresh and new, and it cannot be accomplished and carried out by man-made religion legalism, because that's what legalism is. It is really a creation of man to make himself righteous. Jesus was opposed by these leaders of legalism in his day, and I want us to look at this passage because that's what's happening. He is in opposition. Now it is formal opposition from the religious leaders, the legalists of his day, against his new covenant, new relationship teaching. Now let's look at our passage this way this morning. I want you to see that there is a specific situation and there is a timeless interpretation. There's a specific situation. There are three of them. Starting in verse 33 through verse 11 of chapter 6. Three specific situations. But there is a timeless interpretation for each of these situations. And then for us, there are many applications. So we have a specific situation and Jesus gives himself the timeless interpretation and then it is for us by the Holy Spirit's guidance to make some very personal application and let's pray that the Lord will help us to do that today now notice first of all here's the first scene we read through the first scene and it is the scene of conflict conflict between legalism and the joy of Jesus a conflict between legalism and the joy of Jesus. Look at verse 33. It all comes to a very pointed situation in regard to fasting. 
Notice verse 33. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now, first of all, notice the word they. Who, who are these people? The they. Well, the they here are defined for us and described for us in verse 30. Verse 30 says that this is the Pharisees and their scribes. The Pharisees and their scribes. Now, Pharisees, they show up throughout the life ministry of Jesus. His strongest opponents in many ways. The Pharisees, what does Pharisee mean? It means separated one. These were the religious ultra-conservatives of the day. Many of them were men who, in a well-meaning way, sought righteous living. But also the whole sect was filled with hypocrisy, judgmentalism, a false sense of piety. You could wrap up the Pharisees' theme with the word of Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition. Tradition. They were all about tradition. Not just the scriptures, but the traditions that they had placed upon those scriptures. Those are the Pharisees. And then the scribes were the teachers. They did not teach Really, the Word of God, they taught the interpretations of the Word of God that had been added by people over the centuries. The Pharisees and the scribes, these two groups are interrelated and they are the epitome of legalism. The epitome of legalism. Now, what is legalism? Well, the best definition for legalism is from the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. Here's how Jesus defines legalism in Mark 7, 7. Jesus said they were teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrine, the doctrine of God, the commandments of men. Not the commandments of God, but the commandments of men that have been layered on to the commandments of God. And then those traditions are taught as doctrine. That is legalism. Now, why is this mentioned so much in the life of Jesus? Is it just so that we can have a history lesson that Jesus had these people that opposed him who were the Pharisees? Is it only so we can have a history lesson? No, my friend, because this is a living reality and a living danger for every Christian and for every church. The relentless danger of legalism. We must watch out for the Pharisees. Now, where do you look for the Pharisees? We're going to watch out for the Pharisees as followers of Jesus. Where do we look for the Pharisees? Well, the first place you can look, my friend, is to look in the mirror. Because in every one of us, there is yet a Pharisaical attitude of self-righteousness. And demanding our way, it's there, and it has to be put to death on a daily basis. we got to deal with the Pharisee inside of us. Where do we find the Pharisees? We find them in the mirror. But we also find the Pharisees in the membership. Because one of Satan's great 
tactics over the ages is to insert into the family of God, the fellowship of believers, those who want to teach as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, legalism is much more at home in the sanctuary than it is in the sewer. And quite frankly, it is more dangerous to Bible-believing Christians. Much more dangerous than the sin of the sewer life is the sin in the sanctuary of legalism. Now, our text here is a case study in legalism. It's a case study in legalism, and it's built around what seems to be a very small issue. The issue seems so small, but it's just the tip of an iceberg of graceless religion. He's talking about fasting. The Bible is describing here an opposition to Jesus over the issue of fasting. But fasting wasn't the issue. It's the tip of the iceberg over something much deeper the iceberg of graceless religion. Now, fasting was very important in the religion of the Jewish people, especially in Jesus' day. It was very important to the Pharisees. They fasted two days out of every seven. They fasted. And they considered it a mark of righteousness. And they wanted everybody to know when their day of fasting was and appear to be marked by that fasting so people would notice them and they could have their pride in their appearance of self-righteousness. It was very important to the Pharisees, but it's important to define fasting. What is fasting? Well, fasting is a time of abstaining from physical food for a spiritual focus. That's what fasting is. It is a time or a season of abstaining from physical food for a spiritual focus. My friends, listen carefully. Fasting is not a divine diet. That's not what fasting is. It's not a divine diet plan, though, yes, it might encourage health for folks to do more fasting. Perhaps the first application of fasting would be for us to uh, avoid fast food, maybe. <laughs> that might be the first way. But fasting is something much more than a diet. Fasting is always connected with a hunger for God. It's connected always with a hunger with, for God and it's always connected with prayer. It's always connected with prayer. It's not really. The Bible doesn't teach fasting. It teaches fasting with prayer. You see, my friend, you can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast without praying. Fasting is always about a hunger for God and a desire for closeness and His help and His aid in time of need. Spiritual focus. Now the Pharisees, they questioned Jesus, you see, about the lack of fasting by his disciples. They're very wise. They don't come and accuse him. They accuse his disciples. And notice these legalists, notice what they did. They tried to cause a division 
between the people of God, among the servants of God. They try to cause a division between the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John. Do you see that in verse 33? These Pharisees wanted to divide servants of God. And that's another earmark of legalism. Legalism is not about finding unity on the key issues of faith. It's about dividing God's people over issues that are meaningless or non-essential. That's what legalism does. And that's what these Pharisees were trying to do. Now notice, that's the situation But Jesus addresses them with a timeless interpretation. A timeless interpretation. And so he doesn't talk about fasting per se. But he talks about something much bigger. About the legalistic spirit that is trying to be imposed upon him and his disciples. Man-made religion being forced upon those who have a God-made relationship with the king. And so Jesus uses three illustrations, did you notice, to talk about how these two, man-made religion and his kingdom, cannot go together. He uses the illustration of a wedding, the illustration of a wardrobe, and the illustration of wine. Now, first, he uses the illustration of a wedding. Look at this in verse 34, what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Notice what The Lord is saying here, he is saying that you cannot expect people who come to a wedding to come in a fast. You know, over the years, I've I've conducted hundreds of weddings. I don't know exactly how many, but hundreds of them. But one thing I've noticed, I've never seen myself or many people practicing a fast at a wedding reception. I really haven't observed that. As a matter of fact, I might have renamed the title of the movie My Big Fat Baptist Wedding. That's what I might have retitled that. What did Jesus say? Jesus said the friends of the bridegroom, that's the attendants of the bridegroom, and also the guests who come, they don't fast. Why don't they fast? They don't fast because the bridegroom is here. They don't fast because the bridegroom is here and they're rejoicing with the bridegroom in the bridegroom's presence. You see, these legalists, the Pharisees, they tried to cite John the Baptist. But you know what Jesus did? Isn't this amazingly wise? He quotes, in a sense, John the Baptist. He quotes his cousin, John the Baptist, and paraphrases him. What did John the Baptist say? Here's what he said in John chapter 3, verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. Listen carefully to John the Baptist. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. What is Jesus telling us? He's telling us that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And while he was on the earth, people, his people, could not fast because he was with them. My friends, now that he has gone from us and ascended back to heaven, there are times when we're led into a fast for a spiritual focus to seek him. But friends, I want you to know, when you go to be with the Lord, you'll leave all fasting behind you. Because you will never fast through all eternity. Because you will be in the presence of the bridegroom. And you will be enjoying his fellowship. And the marriage supper of the Lamb. Which goes on and on through endless days. And you will enjoy the presence of the Lord. No fasting there. I love what Sarah McCracken has given us in her song. Here are some of the words. We will feast. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, yes, we will feast and weep no more. Isn't it wonderful to know that the bridegroom is coming again? And when we meet him, either in death or when he comes in power and glory, all fasting will be left behind and we will be in his presence forevermore. In the presence of Jesus, there's joy. Jesus said legalism is like fasting at a wedding. And then notice Jesus said legalism is like an old garment trying to attach to new cloth. An old garment trying to attach to new cloth. Look at verse 36. Notice Jesus said, in verse 36, He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. What is Jesus saying? You don't take an old, almost worn out garment and add a piece of new cloth and it would have been pre-shunk cloth and then add it because when it dries it's going to tear and make even a bigger hole what's Jesus saying you cannot take the worn out legalistic man-made religion and you cannot attach his message of saving grace and the gospel and abundant life you cannot put those two together they are incompatible that's what Jesus is saying Legalism is like an old garment trying to attach to new cloth. It cannot happen. And then the third illustration. Jesus says legalism is like old wineskins trying to hold new wine. It's like old wineskins trying to hold new wine. Look at verse 37. And he said, no one puts new wine into the old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What's Jesus saying here? He's using illustration they're very, very familiar with. That you cannot take new wine that is not yet fermented and put it in old wineskins. Because when that process of fermentation takes place and the gases are released, that old, stiff, brittle container 
of the old wine will burst and the old wine skin will be destroyed and the wine, the new wine, will be lost. What's Jesus saying? You cannot take the new wine of the gospel. You cannot take the new wine of life with me and in my kingdom and you cannot put it in a stiff old container of man-made religion. It cannot contain it. It's not intended to. It should never even try to. The Lord has always given us new wine in his salvation. Fresh living relationship. An old legalistic religion can never contain it. Sadly, and this is very sad, legalists don't savor the wine of salvation. They don't savor the wine of salvation. Why do I say that? Look at verse 39. Here's what Jesus said. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good. What's Jesus' point? People who get very satisfied in their legalistic, man-made religion of codes and requirements that have been heaped on the law, that are about their pride and about their self-righteousness, they will not savor, they won't even appreciate the new wine of a living relationship with someone who has saved them from their self-righteousness. They'll say, oh, this is just fine. How sad today that millions... And maybe some even participating today. You're very satisfied with an old man-made religion of works and self-righteousness. And you've not savoring, you're not savoring the wonderful life that is in Jesus Christ. This wine of his salvation. Personal application here in this scene. How do we make... A personal application. Here's the question. Ask yourself the question this morning. How is my sense of taste? How is my sense of taste? Friend, I want to ask you a question. Listen carefully to the question. Do you really savor the Savior? Do you really savor the Savior? Is He unspeakable? Unspeakably delicious to your soul. Do you savor the Savior? My friend, here is some light for legalism. Here's some light for legalism. And it's from David. Psalm 34. David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Isn't it amazing? He talks about God as wine. Taste and see, Savior, the sovereign Lord and his salvation. Taste and see that he is good. Don't feed your soul on the dry husk of man-made legalism. Savor the Savior. 
Well, the Pharisees were relentless. They didn't stop in this one situation. Legalism is never like that. Legalistic religion is always relentless. That's the reason we always have to be on guard, on guard for it. And notice this in sec the second scene. Sometime later, we're not told. But the second scene, we see legalism compared to the sovereignty of the Savior. Legalism compared to the sovereignty, the rule of the Savior. Look at chapter 6. The thought continues right through. It's not divided by the chapter. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees, there they are again, said, Why? Are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now notice, here's another tip of the iceberg. It's another tip, but it's the iceberg that's beneath it. The tip here is the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping. Man-made codes about keeping the Sabbath. But beneath it is this iceberg, iceberg of a relationless religion. No life. Man-made religion. Now notice, these legalists, notice what they've done. They first condemned Jesus' disciples because they weren't fasting. We just saw that. They're condemning Jesus and his disciples because they weren't fasting. Now they're condemning them because they are eating. There's just no winning with this. There never is with legalism because it's not an issue of rational thinking. It's an inclination of the heart. He's saying they are in violation of the Sabbath. Why are they in violation? Well, they dared to take some grain while they were walking through the fields. Paths would go across fields and you would cut across the field. It was... Very, very legal to do that. And as you walked along, it was very legal as well to reach out to take a few handful of grain and rub the husks together, pop the grain in your mouth as a little snack. This was done. It was intentionally done to leave the corners of the field for taking of some grain for those that are hungry. But Jesus' disciples did it on a Sabbath day. On the Sabbath and according to the legalistic interpretation of the Pharisees, they're working, rubbing their hands together to break down those heads of wheat. That's working. You're violating the Sabbath. Jesus gives a timeless interpretation. He uses to oppose them and their legalism what they hate to be used to oppose them. And that is the word of God. Oh, there's nothing a legalist hates as much as having the word of God used to bring light to his or her hypocrisy. Look at verse 8. Or verse 3, rather. And Jesus answers them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those with him? He entered the house of God. He took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. Jesus is quoting, citing a historical event. 
It took place in our Bibles. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men are fleeing from King Saul. David is the anointed king-to-be of Israel. He's being pursued by Saul. They haven't even had time to eat. So they come upon the tent of the meeting, the place of the tabernacle. And there they take some of the bread of the presence, the, the bread that was put out week to week inside of the tent in the presence of God. It represented the manna and that God was the bread of life to his people. That bread could only be eaten by the priests. They were to live on that bread. And so David and his men, fleeing for their lives, take some of the bread and they eat it to give them strength and to sustain their journey. And Jesus is saying, don't you see, this is exactly what David did. He gives them this interpretation. But then notice, this is the most important thing. Jesus makes a declaration. A declaration about himself in regard to the Sabbath. Listen to this. He shares it in verse 5. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. There, Jesus did it again. He identified himself as the Son of Man. That's a messianic title, a title for Messiah. He said, I am the Son of Man. I am Messiah. But now he goes even further. These Pharisees would be aghast at what he says. He says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and Jesus not only declares his identity as the Messiah, he declares his authority as the Lord, Jehovah of the Sabbath. My friend, I would tell you, that statement was enough to pop the Pharisees' phylacteries right then. Jesus is claiming divine authority. What is he saying? He is saying, listen carefully, I formed the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I formed the Sabbath. It's my Sabbath. And why did God establish the Sabbath? Why did he establish the Sabbath? Did he establish the Sabbath to be a burden? No, he established the Sabbath to be a blessing. So that men and women could rest one day out of seven and reflect on the goodness of God and regain their strength and renew their relationships with one another and renew their relationship with their maker God. It was not meant as a burden, it was meant as a blessing. You know, I thank God, listen, I thank God that my dad got this. Listen, my dad was big on the Sabbath. I mean, he was big on the Sabbath. What he understood to be the Sabbath was Sunday. And here's what it looked like at my house growing up. On Sunday, there was no mowing the yard. On Sunday, there was no washing dad's car. On Sunday, there was no taking out the trash. On Sunday, there were no chores. Oh, me and my brother just hated the Sabbath. <laughs> oh, we loved it. It was a blessing. But guess what else there was on the Sabbath? There was a yes to fishing. 
after church. There was a yes to baseball games, basketball playing with after church. There was a yes to playing in the park after church. And yes, there was a yes to car rides into the country to go to the general store to get one of those special kinds of soda that they had there. My friend, listen. My dad did not need a presidential order to declare that houses of worship were essential. (laughs) They were essential. And he believed Sunday was a blessing. He understood the purpose statement of Jesus. What's the purpose statement of Jesus in regard to the Sabbath? Here's his purpose statement. Mark chapter 2, verses 27 to 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You notice what he says there? He says the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. What's Jesus saying? He's saying God did not create the Sabbath to be legalistic burden. He created it to be a blessing. And that's exactly the way his kingdom operates. When God says no to something, my friend, when he tells you no to something, it's to say yes to something that's so much better. With God's every no, there's a yes to that which is true and good. And it is in your best interest and for his glory. Jesus formed the Sabbath and Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus himself, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He fulfilled the Sabbath. He said, I have not come to destroy the law. He said, I have not come to destroy it. I have come to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law. How did he fulfill the law? He fulfilled it by obeying the righteous requirements of the law. Absolute obedience to God. Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the requirements of the law. He lived a perfectly obedient life. And then in his love, he fulfilled the righteous judgments of the law as he accepted Your broken law, my broken law, disobedience against God, he accepted our penalty in himself on the cross. He fulfilled the law by obeying it and he fulfilled the law by accepting the punishment of sinners who have disobeyed it so that we might have his righteousness. What a savior we have. What a savior he is. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the wrapping up of everything that was promised in the law. It is all fulfilled in Christ in the new covenant. That's the reason the Apostle Paul says this. Mark it down. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, let no one judge you. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. Or a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbath. What is that? Those are the Old Testament symbols. Practices of the Old Testament. These are a shadow of things to come. They all foreshadowed Christ. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the festivals. 
They all foreshadowed Christ, but they were just a shadow because the substance is Christ. Friends, do you know what legalists do? Legalists want to hug the shadows rather than to embrace the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. Some light for legalism, my friends. Listen carefully. Don't fall into legalism. Here's some light. All wrong things are not equally sinful. And all right things are not equally important. All wrong things are not equally sinful. I hear people say, sin is sin. Sin is sin. That's true in regard to the essence of sin. All sin is a violation of God's commandments. But all sins are not equal in their expression. There is some sin worse than others. Even as Jesus said, the sin of Judas Iscariot was greater than the sin of Pilate. Jesus said the sin of Bethsaida and Capernaum was greater than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And all things that are true are not equally important. All things that are right are not equally important. There are things that are right, but there are things that are so important, so vital. My friends, these legalists, They all knew the letters of the law. Oh, they knew the ABCs of the law and they knew the letters of all their interpretations of the law. But what they could not spell was love. They couldn't spell love. The fulfillment of the law is in one word. The royal commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And what is Jesus interested in? His first concern for me and you is this. Do you still love me? Am I still your first love? Like he said to the church of Ephesus, I'm grateful for your doctrine. I'm grateful that you stood opposed to apostasy. I'm grateful that you've put out of the church those who were teaching heresy. But he said, I have this against you. You've left me your first love. Our time is gone, but I want to close with this story. In my university days, I attended a leading fundamentalist school. I did that for four years of undergraduate and all the years that I was in seminary. I went there having only been converted for six months. And I want you to hear this, in a thousand lifetimes, in a thousand lifetimes, I could never repay what I owe to that university and seminary. But it had issues of legalism within it. I remember one of the most gripping moments I ever had in all of those six years of training in theology is in the second semester of my senior year. We were in an ethics class, almost the end of the semester. And the professor was teaching about how to evaluate your personal convictions in light of Scripture. Making sure those convictions are aligned with Scripture. And over to the left in the big lecture room, well, there was Legalist Row. 
They, they had all things figured out, and just enough theology to make them dangerous. Getting their masters in snack shop theology, as I would say. And they started arguing with this professor. This man was a godly man who had given his entire life to serving, especially training young men for the ministry. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. As they argued with him, he closed his notes, his lip trembled, and tears ran down his face. And here's what he said. I am afraid, men, that we may have failed you. We have taught you how to fight. But we've not taught you how to love. And with that, he put his Bible under his arm. And with tears running down his face, he walked up the aisle and left the lecture hall. We sat there in silence. And little by little, we walked out of that class. I have never forgotten that. My friend, we must fight the good fight. Stand for what is right. Stand for the word of God. But above all, if we are followers of Christ, we must be known by our love. We know how to fight. But may we remember to love. Doug, I feel led just to close here. We were going to sing a song, but right now I feel like the Holy Spirit says, let's just close the service here. But can I ask you to do this, please? Don't close your mind. Don't step away. From wherever you are watching or listening, let the Holy Spirit make his personal application. Father God, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for this appointed hour. I thank you that you have brought us to this scripture to examine our own hearts. To make sure that we are known for the love that you have poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through Christ and that we are people of love. Lord, give us backbones to stand for the faith, to protect the faith. Oh, Lord God, may we not ever neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and compassion. These are the weightier matters of the law. May they weigh heavily on our hearts and guide our steps, I pray. And now, Lord God, send out your light and your truth into every person's life. Participating in this service in any form, bring light and liberty in Jesus' name, I pray. And the people of God said, amen and amen. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being here and joining for worship today.